Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Facebook has realized that people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. Social media goes dark for a day, but the whistleblower claims Facebook's shadow has loomed for years. Publicity is publicity, um, and so that, that loss of $100 million shows the power. While we look at the Senate testimony, how does the culture look within? Is there an over-index on social media? Then... Black and brown people are the people who are, are dying the most from COVID. I knew that I had to go far, far beyond. From Hollywood to the hardwood, the COVID-19 vaccines are mandating important conversations. Uh, I think they should be disciplined. Uh, I don't think that they are uh, behaving like good teammates or, or good citizens. Issa's bringing all the funny and all the feels with the final season of Insecure. We discuss if Black women are ever seen as victims worthy of compassion. Yet another George Floyd statue gets vandalized. And we head black to Africa and ask why so many are returning to the motherland. I think it's important to know who we are. All that and more tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm your guest host, Naima Abdullahi, filling in for Ebony Kate Williams. We begin with the social media fallout and the Facebook whistleblower that broke the internet. Francis Haugen dropped a bombshell about the inner workings of the media conglomerate, leaving the social media network unraveling with allegations of hate and greed. When they got rid of civic integrity, it was the moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. With that, Haugen opened the Pandora's box detailing irresponsible inner workings within Facebook and Instagram and the impact the social media platforms had on its audience, particularly Gen Z. One study says 13.5% of teen girls say Instagram makes thoughts of suicide worse. 17% of teen girls say Instagram makes eating disorders worse. With this research, we found that more teen girls actually find Instagram helpful. Teen girls who are suffering from these, these issues find Instagram helpful than not. Now, that doesn't mean that the ones that aren't aren't important to us. In fact, that's why we do this research. Well, it's if I may interrupt you, Ms. Davis, yeah, uh, these are your own reports. Now, with the whistle blown and the culture caught in the crosshairs, it's the intersection of black digital citizenship that's in the spotlight. So in every post, be it a photo, video, or anything else on Instagram, you can always report something. There's a little dot, dot, dot. Do you really check it? Because sometimes I feel like it doesn't get checked because there's so many people that make fake MV pages. I feel like every yeah. day I'm like, I've done it. Fake it's MV definitely page. Fake MV me. page. Fake MV page. Mm -hmm. We've got room to improve. But until that time, as Haugen's candid revelations show, a cultural crumbling of society is here at the hands of social media's preference to put profit first. Facebook makes more money when you consume more content. People enjoy engaging with things that elicit an emotional reaction. 
And the more anger that they get exposed to, the more they interact and more they consume. And there is so much to break down from Haugen's Senate testimony this week and how it relates to black culture online. Joining us is tech expert and author Stephanie Humphrey. Also with us is financial expert Ash Cash. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Right now, we're going to get to the first question. Stephanie, this is for you. So do you think Facebook has a strong control over the culture and the kind of content we absorb every single day with the amount of power that it has? It absolutely does. I mean, you know, part of uh, Ms. Haugen's testimony was the fact that Facebook was a true threat to democracy around the world because there were world leaders that would modify uh, and edit what they said based on the platform and based on how they knew the algorithm performed. So we have uh, global foreign policy being shaped by Facebook's algorithm. And with that democracy, for better or worse, what we were able to see this past week is how quickly we can see a downfall in our society once these apps go down. We're talking about Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, all of them going down. Over the years, what this also did was it sparked the conversation we've been having as a culture, where do these companies profit, um, benefit from people in, in aspect of looking at people instead of the personal interest for the culture, are they looking at the profit? You know, are they looking at clicks before the culture? This is a conversation we've been seeing on social media for so long. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it actually goes against their whole business model, right? Their business model, it's a free app. Um, and in order for them to make money, uh, they have to focus on engagement. They have to focus on the things that will keep people on the apps. Um, and so I think I, I don't see it changing because, um, you know, that's what's what's driving, you know, driving their revenue. And we can't have this conversation about Facebook and not bring up Mark Zuckerberg, right? He released a statement discrediting the allegations that Haugen made. And I want to spend some time right now, in part, reading some of his quote. It says, at the heart of these accusations is this idea that we prioritize profit over safety and well-being. That's just not true. For example, one move that has been called into question is when we introduced the meaningful social interactions change to newsfeed. This change showed fewer viral videos and more content from family and friends, which we did knowing it would mean people spent less time on Facebook. But that research suggested it was the right thing to do for people's well-being. Is that something a company focused on profits over people would do. Share your thoughts with me, Stephanie. So there are a few different things that I took away from Mark Zuckerberg's statement that I saw yesterday. First of all, that idea of meaningful social interactions. Um, you know, Ms. Haugen's testimony and, and the evidence that she presented in the Senate hearing yesterday showed that they had what was called downstream meaningful social interactions where they actually promoted content that they predicted would go viral, which tended to be that sensationalist, violent, misinformation type of content, which I think kind of brought us to the January 6th insurrection because a lot of that content was allowed to propagate. The other thing he said in that in that statement was that, you know, the, the research that they're doing um, that has been called into question by Francis Haugen and others, uh, he's saying, well, we're doing this research so we can get better. But you've done the research and you haven't really made any significant and measurable changes. So that's a problem as well. And then the third thing he did, which is kind of right out of the uh, PR playbook for corporations in, in situations like this, was completely tried to discredit uh, Frances Haugen as a person, basically, by saying she didn't really work in the, in the uh, group that, that 
worked with Instagram, and so she doesn't know a ton about uh, the idea that Instagram is hurting young ladies and, and things like that. But but she did work in that civic integrity unit that was tasked with uh, finding and, and eliminating misinformation and disinformation from the platform. She's also a computer scientist, so she has the the educational credibility and authority to <clears throat> excuse me make determinations about other things Facebook might be doing based on the thousands of pages of data that she has in her possession. Look, this may be her first time in the spotlight, but this is not his first time addressing criticism. He's done it over the years. He's released other statements in the past. Ash, I want to bring you in on this conversation. Um, whoever is responsible, what should that accountability look like? There has to be more transparency. There has to be some type of third party, uh, you know, situation where, you know, you know, they're not purposely turning on and turning off the things that, that become harmful. Um, and then, you know, once we, we find out that this is happening, they have to be fine. They have to be, you know, somehow uh, not able uh, to profit off of, you know, people, you know, you know, people's emotions and people, you know, you know, feeling, feeling down and being sensationalized. It has to be uh, in a way that stops them from being able to, to monetize as much as they, they're able to monetize. And as it relates yeah. to this young generation, Gen Z, where most of these kids spent their entire lives on social media, Senator Mike Lee brought up a really good point about how it impacts the psychology of this generation, that certain Facebook advertisement targets and supports anorexia, um, you know, self-doubt with imagery and different things like that. And Haugen also led to how some advertisement also led to that. How do you guys think companies should respond to the allegations that she made and conversations we've been hearing about how it deteriorates this young generation's concept of what beauty is, what reality is, because they think there's this polished body image that they should have when in reality they should embrace their own selves? Yeah, I think, you know, the the responsibility uh, falling on the platform to sort of police the type of content uh, that... Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That is on the platform is not going to happen until uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act gets modified to hold them accountable for that. I think the, the bigger conversation in, in this part of the uh, equation is where parents come into these uh discussions because these are minors we're talking about and how minors mental health and wellness is, is being affected by social media their addiction to these social media platforms the parents have uh, a lot of influence over that process and and a lot of influence over the experience their young people are having on these platforms so we really do have to get parents and in, better involved in this conversation some say black people over index on social media is this an opportunity moment to reevaluate black digital citizenship and really reclaim how much power we do have in maybe one day owning the culture. We can start with you, Stephanie. It absolutely is. We definitely need to start looking at other platforms like Fanbase and, and different things like that um, to redirect some of this traffic uh, that we see pushing towards Facebook and Instagram. They get a ton of traffic, millions and millions of mm -hmm. users. There's no reason we can't spread that engagement around and make it benefit us and our culture directly. We are the culture, right? So without us, 
none of the social media platforms really exist. Um, and, you know, Stephanie mentioned fan base. You know, I have a, a podcast called Inside the Vault. And I interviewed Isaac Hayes, and he talked about, you know, you know, you know, Clubhouse and how, you know, we allowed Clubhouse to create that $1 billion in valuation when, you know, because mm-hmm. of our culture. Everything, we're just giving it away because without us, you know, everything else wouldn't, you know, n- nothing will pop without our culture. Stephanie and Ash, we appreciate you for coming by the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Ahead, a panel on what's prompting the Black to African movement. Before we were African booty scratchers, now we are kings and queens. But up next, it's the final season of Insecure and seven of the new Broadway plays are penned by Black playwrights. It's all in this week's entertainment update when Revolt Black News Weekly returns. Stick around. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Naima Abdullahi, guest host filling in for Ebony K. Williams. Now, it's time to see what's going on with all your weekly entertainment headlines. Open it. Please. All right, Idris has spoken. He and Regina co-star in the upcoming Western thriller, The Harder They Fall. What is it? Where is who? Your boss. My boss. Clearly, you don't know me. The trailer for the Netflix film just dropped and it's rounded out by an all-star cast, which also includes Delroy Lindo and Oscar nominee Lakeith Stanfield and Jonathan Majors. The film, which is also produced by Jay-Z, is set to hit the streaming service November 3rd. Loving star Ruth Naga is headed to the Great White Way. The Oscar nominee is set to star alongside James Bond, a.k.a. Daniel Gregg in Macbeth. The 15-week production is set to hit Broadway in March of 2022. Additional cast members are expected to be announced throughout the year. Issa? Is that me? Oh, shit! Throwback me! This new look is working for us. Do you like this? Issa Rae literally doing some reflection in the new trailer of her runaway hit series, Insecure. I just want to fast forward to the part of my life when everything's okay. This is the fifth and final season of the HBO hit, which changed pop culture and changed the landscape of television. Issa, who's not only the star, but the creator, posted the trailer to her social media account, letting fans know it was time to do some reflection. Insecure is set to premiere on HBO October 24th. There's a lot more in entertainment to discuss, so let's get right into it. Joining me this week, Hollywood's media prince and TV personality, Ty Cole and Shinika Taylor. Let's start with Ty. Big news here, the Hollywood's Foreign Press Association has appointed six new black members, the organization of non-American journalists, best known for hosting the annual Golden Globe Awards revealed in 2020, there were zero black members out of 87, right? What does this moment really mean for us in this moment in time that it took this long to get here? What do you think, Ty? For me, I'm excited for them to, you know, finally be a part of this prestigious class, but I want to see the action. I think a lot of times when we're in these spaces and we have these announcements and there's a limited amount of us to be included, we think, okay, automatically there's like change. No, that's the first step. So I really want to see what changes will be implemented 
what's going to happen moving forward. I think it's great that they're going to stop the Golden Globes for next year just to really reevaluate. But I want to just make sure that they're doing this for the right reasons, not to just say, hey, here's a few Black people in the space. Everyone should be happy. I want to make sure that we are having us in the space and able to also vocalize and voice our opinions and make some changes. My next question is for Shanika. Black playwrights are taking Broadway by storm as the latest seven Broadway plays are all penned by black men and women. What does this mean to you? You know, that representation of our stories being told by us is happening at the rate it's happening right now, Shanika. Theater is culture. Black theater is black culture. Um, so isn't it about time that people get to learn and experience black culture? I mean, for a while, you know, I watched The Wicked and I had to sit through that. So it's about time white people can sit and watch through our shows coming from Jersey. You know, Broadway is a big deal and it's expensive um, to be completely honest. So when I finally got the time to go and catch a show or whatever, the only black representative that I saw was the, the lady who walked me into the place. What type of message is that sending out? So this, I think about the little girl who is out there um, and she now finally gets to see a black representation on that stage. That to me matters a lot. Ty, what do you think, uh, what do you hope uh, with the type of changes that this could bring to the entertainment world? What do you hope that it actually ignites to see more um, black playwriters telling our stories in that way? I want to hear your take on this. I think that it's a beautiful thing, you know? I really hope that we're able to just have a lot of our stories told, but I also wanna make sure that we have different stories told, right? So I think a lot of times we have kind of like the same formula where it's like we are only in rom-coms because we're seen as funny, or we're only in slave type of films because we're only seen as slaves. Like I really wanna see us in different types of of, of mediums. I want to see us in sci-fi. I want to see us being able to just be happy-go-lucky black people, just, you know, living your lives. Like, there are a lot of cult classics, like Legally Blonde, the musical, and, you know, uh, so many other ones along those lines. And they're able to just be themselves. And I want us to also be able to just be ourselves and also unveil that there are way more other levels to us versus what we're already seeing in entertainment right now. One culture icon whose story has changed so many lives, Whitney Houston, right? Let's bring it back to her. Her estate is going through an overdrive as the late singer's estate is kind of wanting to explore what it would look like to tell her story on the Broadway musical level based on her life. In addition to that, MAC Cosmetic Brand has also announced a partnership with the late singer's estates. And this really ignites a different kind of conversation, right? Of whether it's family members or whether it's representatives of the estate saying, well, this goes against the artist's vision or this may go against the artist's legacy. What are your thoughts on really preserving the legacies? And is there ever a balance of how to balance those things together? Ty, I want to bring that question to you. I think that we should just let her rest. I think that we have had Whitney post her passing for such a long time. And while I love that she's still celebrated and things of that nature, I think that it's kind of time to just let her rest, like really rest and sleep in peace. I think that, you know, the more that we continue to push things out and the more things that continues to happen with her estate, while I think that it's great to have her legacy live on, let her legacy live on with the things that she's already done for us. I don't think that we necessarily 
need a MAC cosmetic line. I don't think that we necessarily need anything else. I think that she's given us as much as she could and she served them for a purpose. And I just feel as though that let her, let her rest in peace. Ty and Shinika, thank you so much for joining me. Up next, R. Kelly's ex, Kitty Jones, joins me for a powerful conversation about black women and if they can ever be viewed as victims worthy of compassion. We get right into it after the break. needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the show. Now we're exploring a very important question. Can black women ever be viewed as victims worthy of compassion? Joining me is one of R. Kelly's ex-girlfriends, Kitty Jones. Also with us is a former prosecutor and civil rights attorney, Maria Banjo. Welcome to the show, ladies. My first question is, what was your reaction when you heard the verdict? A wave of emotions, uh, tears with my family. Um, it, was, it was just a long, a, a long time coming. I had been a silence breaker in this for four years. So to hear a guilty verdict, it was it was empowering to hear that, to know that I was a part of um, getting some justice. It was a very emotional time and it still is. I'm still processing it, so. In that moment when you gain the courage to speak up, and to share what happened to you after you shared with the world what happened. Were you treated like a damsel in distress from society, from social media, from even our own community? No, I wasn't treated as a damsel in distress. And I'll say mainly from the black community, um, we're a term that's always, I guess, perceived to be empowering and uplifting, um, strong black woman we tend to try to live up to that. And it ends up, I guess, working against us in the end um, hmm. because, you know, we're not perceived to be vulnerable or, you know, victims of anything. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the way that we're raised. And then as young women where, you know, we have aunts and, and young single mothers and maybe people in our own family that we looked up to that, maybe raise kids on their own and were heads of households. Um, so we looked at that as an empowering thing as young black women. So when you do become a victim of something or abuse, we're not quickly to be believed when it comes to us having any type of pain or vulnerability or being a, a, abused. I wanna bring in Maria Banjo into the conversation. Maria, let's look at this from a bigger perspective. When we're looking at black women as victims and if they're worthy of compassion, you know, when it comes to the criminal justice system, why or why not are they oftentimes believed or not believed? You know, at the end of the day, we are still fighting an uphill battle. I've had cases where um, Black women have been brutally sexually um, assaulted and law enforcement officers, uh, judges, I mean, the entire system really fails to um, respond appropriately. And let's compare that from your experience and your background with the treatment of black women, right, in law enforcement versus white women. 
What is the difference and discrepancy between how both kinds of women may be treated? When I was a prosecutor here in Georgia, I had defense counsel as a negotiation tactic said, some black women just need to be hit. And that's just what we do. When you heard that, what went through your mind? How did you respond to that? Because that is troubling to hear. I responded as, as anyone could, would, would expect, you know, I told him I was offended. That was not a really good negotiation tactic. And he should really rethink, um, you know, how he views women, but specifically black women. That's not something that you will see with those who, um, you know, are not our, our, our skin color. <laughs> Kitty and Maria, we really appreciate you for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much. Now, over to the vandalized George Floyd statue in New York City, just days after its unveiling, why it's happening? And an even more important question, is it a pattern? Joining us is activist and pastor of the Metropolitan AME Church in Harlem, New York, Reverend Stephen A. Green. Thank you so much for joining us, Rev Green. There are so many defacing of George Floyd memorials. This trend, you know, it's alarming to see. What do you think is contributing to it? Well, I think what's contributing to this defacing of our sacred sites or memorials to honor the lives of black bodies is the rise of domestic terrorism that we're seeing all across this country, whether it be in school board meetings or in statues that reflect black bodies. We are seeing this, the, the rise of white supremacist violence targeting uh, images uh, that celebrate black life. And as you're noticing this, are there other statues being vandalized? Can we also point to other forms of uh, vandalism of other people who are being memorialized? Sure. I mean, we can point to the, the vandalization of churches, which happened uh, not just uh, recently with the Proud Boys in Washington, D.C., destroying uh, the sign in front of uh, Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C., but this is a part of a long history. Uh, there's always an attempt. To, to, to deny black humanity by denying uh, the fullness of our sacred sites. As a journalist, when George Floyd's name became a trending topic, you know, we saw the headlines, black man killed. And then here's this narrative of his past being dug up, right? What does that narrative shifting say about how black men are oftentimes portrayed in the media? Um, and what, what to you, like, you know, we've seen it happen with Walter Scott, with Alton Sterling, you know, within that trend as well of someone's past being brought to light after they're dead. What does that really say? Not only is there an assassination of, uh, of, of George Floyd, but there was an assassination of his character, that it is that it is this duality, is this struggle that we reflect on as black men and as black people in this society of always having to prove ourselves honorable of death prove ourselves honorable of justice when justice is our birthright mm -hmm. and when our humanity should be respected and our dignity should be affirmed. And so we constantly are, are, are tossed into this battle of trying to, to are trying to prove ourselves as being fully human in these yet to be United States of America. In the conversation of what's next, what do we do now? We've seen the protests and then we've seen solidarity protests worldwide, in Germany, South Africa, you name it. There were so many solidarity protests. But in the conversation of what's next, you know, the proposal of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act has been one of those conversations, but it did not pass. Why do you think it, we're still not there yet as far as the Policing Act? 
one bill will not help us. One bill will not transform us. We need an affirmative amendment that says that black people are truly free in this country, that reparations are our birthright, that we deserve reparative justice, that we need to end penal slavery. It goes beyond the hashtag because the problem uh, that arises from the George Floyd crisis is the mirror that America had to look into herself and recognize that she has not been true to what she's meant on paper, that she has not been true to assuring that freedom and justice and liberty is a is, is a part of every American's existence and, and, and truly um, embraced by every participant and every person in this nation. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and we really appreciate this discussion. Thank you so much for the time. Coming up, what's prompting the Black to Africa movement? But up next, we got a panel on vaccine mandates and the conundrum across Hollywood and the NBA. Stick around. More Revolt Black News Weekly after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. As vaccine mandates increase across the country, we look at the conundrum such protocols place on industries like Hollywood. Known for the dreams displayed across the silver screen, how do these mandates impact the reality of those behind the scenes who were already at the margins of representation? Do these rules carry the same conversations about inclusion or do they alternatively amplify exclusion? Impressive Good with morning, a capital Gail. I. I say, wow, wow, wow. Good morning. I'm sitting here, Mr. Perry. I have the, the confidential 30-page document of Camp Quarantine. Listen, you covered all the bases. You covered, you dotted every I and crossed every T. What happens is we check in uh, 360 people. We test everybody. And everybody stays in their rooms until uh, the test results come back. And once the test results come back and everybody's cleared, then we are able to go to work the following day. And that is how Tyler Perry changed the game of television production. In the summer of 2020, well before COVID-19 vaccines became available, the media powerhouse and owner of Tyler Perry Studios made it possible for his 360 employees to return to work while living in a bubble on his 330-acre lot in Atlanta. I have 360 people that are working for me that needed to pay their bills and they bought houses and cars. And so I had to find a way to make sure that I could keep them safe. Realizing that black and brown people are the people who are, are dying the most from COVID, I knew that I had to go far, far beyond. Over a year later, three vaccines have been available for emergency use to the American people and booster shots for those who qualify. However, the culture has seen stark hesitancy and controversy. What you see happening across black communities, across brown communities, persons of color, are folks who just have experiences with the healthcare um, system that have been stained by racism. Now, in terms of the Hollywood landscape, some wonder how these mandates will widen the representation gap even more. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. 
It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. But it depends which Hollywood star you ask. Because there's white Hollywood. For instance, when Frances McDormand at the 90th Oscars very clearly voiced a path to inclusion during her acceptance speech. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Inclusion rider. And then there's black Hollywood. When I started hiring people like Taraji and Viola Davis and Idris Elba, they couldn't get jobs in this town, but God blessed me to be in a position to be able to hire them. From Nicki Minaj's assertion and resistance to some of the biggest names in the NBA now in the hot seat. While 95% of all players are reportedly vaccinated, there are the ballers unwilling to follow the mandate to vaccinate, which isn't sitting well with those in and out of the game. Former NBA star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar made his opinion clear to CNN's Don Lemon. Uh, I think they should be disciplined. Uh, I don't think that they are uh, behaving like good teammates or, or good citizens. And does the discrepancy in words and actions speak to those in position of power? Because of the NBA's 30 teams, there are 10 black general managers and only one black franchise owner, Michael Jordan. While over in Black Hollywood... When I built my studio, I built it in a neighborhood that is one of the poorest black neighborhoods in Atlanta so the young black kids can see that a black man did that and they can do it too. So when it comes to vaccinations and representation, is there only one opinion on the matter? Each person perceives risk differently. The way that I like to help people to understand it is one, ask yourself, am I fully vaccinated? If you are fully vaccinated, then there are more activities, there are more things that you can resume doing that you did prior to the pandemic. The second thing you want to ask yourself is, what type of space am I going into? But regardless of the answer, many see more than one path. That studio was once a Confederate army base, and I want you to hear this, which meant that there was Confederate soldiers on that base plotting and planning on how to keep 3.9 million Negroes enslaved. Now that land is owned by one Negro. As we discuss hesitancy in sports, we have to look at it from an overall perspective as a community. Joining me right now to talk about this are community activist Shar Bates and NBA reporter Mark Haynes. Mark, we're going to start with you, okay? Let's really look at this. Why are these protocols and mandates important right now? Um, I think it's just important just on, on the safety tip uh, as far as, you know, we, we want to keep each other safe, you know. Um, We've had we have opportunities to um, in the past, like so, soon as COVID hit, we had opportunities to kind of you know social distance and, and and things like that. And I think you know it's it's important just to try to get back to you know the way life used to be. You know, I know right now it's, it's it seems you know that way, but it's still that awkwardness of you know just just being around you know different people, and whether it's family, friends, or or strangers, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's important, but it's, it's, it, it is slightly, uh, I say, I wouldn't say slightly. It, it's, a, it's a pushy subject and touchy at that. 
Should you be forced to get vaccinated or lose your livelihood in a specific field that may require vaccination? I mean, is that fair? Is this a matter of public health or choice? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that everyone should be given the choice to make whatever decision is best for them in their household and their health conditions and family history. I think it's an, an infringement upon your personal constitution as well as medical rights for someone to tell you that you cannot move forward without an experimental vaccination. Uh, I think that if it was a situation where they could actually prove that it's going to keep you from receiving the virus or transmitting the virus, which they can't, then it will be a different situation. But by it still being experimental, by them still finding out, um, you know, the side effects and adverse reactions, I don't think it's fair to make someone make a decision like that. Not to mention, uh, this goes against HIPAA. Um, I'm an optician of almost 20 years, and you're not supposed to have to disclose your personal information, especially your health information, to your employer uh, or to, um, you know, the public in order for you to have access, as well as it's actually doctors violating uh, the oaths that they took for their medical license because you're saying that you're going to care for people regardless, you know, of the situation. You're not going to deny them medical care, and that's exactly what's happening here. And it's kind of, it's putting, um, it's it's made such a divide in America over something that should be a personal decision, in my opinion. And Shar, with that divide, you know, both sides of the argument are coming with facts numbers, data. So it seems to be a debate that is never ending and is probably never going to end anytime soon. In regards to vaccine hesitancy, especially in the South and how it impacts um, African-Americans, uh, Mark, let's talk about this. How do you think black people really feel about the vaccine? And is it even fair to address black people from a monolithic perspective? I mean, we can't just assume all black people feel this kind of way. But what are your thoughts on that as you reflect on it with your own personal experience? The history of, of America with black people is it's been so um, it's been so many negative things involved in our history that is just making a lot of African American people, you know, real skeptical about this situation. And I can't I'm not the guy that's gonna say that you should get the vaccine or you shouldn't. I agree with Shar where, you know, it should be a personal, you know, decision, a choice of your own. This is your body. Um, you know, Andrew Wiggins of the Golden State Warriors, he's he's going through or where he basically basically was forced to get the vaccine in order to do his job. Um, I don't think it should be that way, but that's just kind of where the world is right now. It's something, we, you know, we got to work, work through and get through. Shar and Mark, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation about COVID-19 vaccine. Up next, we're going back to Africa. Why are a growing number of African-Americans heading back to the motherland? We get into that conversation next on Revolt Black News Weekly.
Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm guest host Naima Abdullahi, and today I'm joined by the founder of Afrochella, Abdul Karim, and Diddy Emma to have an important conversation about the Back to Africa movement, as many African Americans are migrating back to the motherland and having their own birthright. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. A question I want to ask you, Abdul Karim, is what do you think is attributing to this migration that the culture now wants to go back to the motherland? Uh, I think simply put, the internet is bringing us a lot closer together. Um, people are now able to see that Africans don't live on trees and we don't live in huts and all the places that are around the continent. There's a lot much more to the continent. And also people on the continent are doing a great job at creating the content to be able to showcase their talents um, and they're connecting with people outside of the continent a lot more. So we're seeing this culture exchange happen uh, right in front of our faces. I mean, people in the diaspora are able to see themselves and the people on the continent. And festivals like ours are creating an opportunity for people to be able to see each other and themselves directly on the continent. So we see more of that influx happening. And Diddy Emma, my Nigerian queen, my Naja Peach, you know, as an African who has, you know, was born in the motherland and grew up here in America as well. What do you, how do you respond to this, you know, to see this love and appreciation and admiration for the motherland? Was it always like this growing up? Oh, no, it was not. Um, I really appreciate it. It, you know, it makes us really proud to announce ourselves and to meet ourselves, especially in the entertainment industry. Like I started in 2004 and it was not so many professional dancers, people putting out things. There was no Instagram. There was barely even YouTube. So to see us, you know, go past what our parents want for us when we come to the U.S., and to see us be creative and just be outward with what we believe in, with our talents, and to actually see us succeed and even be on the radio like now, Essence and people picking up our dances, it is a dream come true. You know, it makes us really proud. Before we were African booty scratchers, now we are kings and queens. That can't decide. <laughs> Diddy, tell me about how you have wanted to also create a movement to take people back to the motherland. I know I was speaking to you last year and you wanted to organize an event that would take people who live in Atlanta, who've never been to the motherland back home. Tell me why you thought that was important and valuable to you. I think it's important to know who we are. I think it's important to know who we are currently um, to get into the culture. The best way to get into the culture is to visit. The best way to be a part of something is to be there in the present. And once you get there on the land, there's something about the soil. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's that really makes you feel like nothing do you, that really makes you feel like everything, you know, you're invincible. And when you get around the people, when you're in Lagos and you see that people are awake from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m., like where there's no light, they're lighting candles, hustling on the street, it helps us understand why we are the way that we are and why we love the way that we love and this whole village mentality. So it's until you can get there, there's no movie I feel that has really truly shown what we are as Africans. And, you know, experience is the best thing. So right now I'm actually working on hosting parties the weekend between December 14th through January 7th. Every weekend I wanna invite some celebrity friends um, to Nigeria and to do some um, philanthropy work. And we're working on this concert with, I can't say the brand just yet, 
but we are just definitely always working on something to bring people home and to want them to like be a part of some new culture and you know bring back stories and the diaspora is not just limited to africa right there are so many other regions like black caribbean islands as well should there also be an influx in some of those other regions as well or should we solely focus on africa um i do think that it's important to support the diaspora wherever they are i mean uh you know people have been going to trinidad for years um, trinidad carnival has been doing amazing uh, amazing for Trinidad. Uh, people go to Barbados for crop over and, and Jamaica for various festivals and things of that nature. Um, I do think that, you know, the diaspora coming together and working together to, to kind of celebrate our cultures with each other and learn from each other is the best way forward to be able to kind of create that bridge that we're, we're trying to, to, to create. Um, I, I know that Ghana specifically has created some bilateral, uh, you know, uh, agreements with, with Jamaica, with uh, Trinidad to allow us to culturally exchange without visas, right? So people can go from Jamaica to Ghana without a visa now, which I think is, is beautiful for us to be able to kind of visit each other and learn about each other's cultures and learn about where we connect and where, where we have shared history and things of that nature, because essentially we're all from similar places. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for joining us and for also providing your insight. Before we go, we leave you with some more than average Black folks doing extraordinary things while only eight Black individuals have climbed Mount Everest. An all-Black team is set to accomplish the feat for the first time ever. Joining us is one of those nine teammates, Damon Mullins. Welcome to the show, Damon. What are you expecting on this trek? It's going to be a trek that challenges you mentally and physically, right? Yeah, certainly. Um, one thing that I'm expecting is certainly a good time with the other athletes. We've been training together. We have great relationships. And in the training process, does it cross your mind about the history you could possibly be making? Because it is historic. Well, that's certainly something that a lot of people uh, have been saying about the project. And that's certain, certainly something that has... Uh, been brought to our attention more within the last few weeks. But I think it's really important for us as athletes to focus on the event itself, for us as athletes to focus on communication amongst us on the team so that we can be safe and we can be successful. Well, we wish you and the entire team the best of luck on your journey. Please keep us posted, send us pics, and congratulations in advance. All right, thank you very much. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.